You're listening to a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Welcome back to In Search of Wisdom. I hope the new year is treating you well. Today, I'm excited to share a special episode. It's our first best of compilation, if you will. In the episode, you'll hear clips from some of my favorite conversations on Buddhist wisdom. The first portion of the episode comes from my conversation with Kevin Griffin, the author of Living Kindness, followed by my interview with Shyla Catherine, the author of Beyond Distraction. And then finally, the episode closes with a portion of my conversation with Nick Bomarito, the author of Seeing Clearly. I really enjoyed putting the episode together. And I think you'll find it a wonderful exploration of Buddhist wisdom. The conversations explore a wide range of topics from the Four Noble Truths, training the mind, seeing ourselves in the world clearly, and much more. If you're interested in learning more, you can always go back and listen to the full episodes. All right, without any further delay... I hope you enjoy this episode on Buddhist wisdom. Looking forward to talking on what I've seen referred to as three wisdom tools, but essentially listening, contemplation or reflection, and meditation. But before we get into those, I wanted to maybe spend some time and broadly talk about the topic of suffering. I'm a reader of a Daily Reflections book that you have, Buddhism and the Twelve Steps, and you have a few entries in there on the Four Noble Truths that I wanted to talk about, and I have a couple notes. So maybe to begin, for the listeners not familiar with the Buddha's First Noble Truth, you know, what is it and why, how is it interpreted and things like that? Yeah, well... The first noble truth, you know, I hesitate to just say what the first noble truth is without giving the other three, at least <laughs> yeah. briefly, but the first noble truth is the truth that there is suffering in the world and then in, in our lives, and the Buddha sort of then k- kind of lists all the ways that we suffer, just, you know, birth is suffering, aging is suffering, death is suffering, <laughs> very cheerful, you know. And that, but where he really hits it is when he says, not having what you want is suffering, and having what you don't want is suffering. And I think most people can kind of relate to that idea. It's like, oh, things aren't the way I want them to be. This is unpleasant. And so much of the time, we are in that kind of state of just things aren't quite right. What can I do to make myself feel better? Whether it's go have a snack. <laughs> get it, take a nap, have a cup of coffee, go call a friend. You know, we're always trying to fix ourselves in a way. But uh, briefly, just to say, so that people don't get the idea, that's the whole of the Buddhist teaching. Second noble truth is the cause of suffering, which is our, essentially what I'm describing, like our, our striving to, to change things and always be in this state of dissatisfaction. 
The third noble truth is the possibility of getting out of that cycle. And then the fourth noble truth is the way to break that cycle of suffering. So there is a solution. And could you speak a little bit about maybe the different interpretations of suffering, that word dukkha, and maybe some other meanings or how someone might look at it? Yeah. Well, one of the best, I think, translations, because as you say, dukkha is this ancient Pali word, an ancient Indian language called Pali, that we translate as suffering. But there are many other translations, including stress. But I think the best one is probably unsatisfactoriness. So things are not satisfying. There's a lack of satisfaction that's kind of ever-present. And of course, people then will want to argue with you about that, which, fine. No, I feel satisfaction, you know. Okay, but the key is to understand that satisfaction is temporary. And so, because it's temporary, we can't call it complete satisfaction. It's always just here for a moment. That's pleasant, that's lovely, but it doesn't really solve the problem. So, so dukkha is, it can range from the very simplest sort of, you know, itch that you're scratching on your neck, as I'm doing in demonstration for you, to facing your own death. So it can be very subtle, or it can be very gross. And, and so it kind of covers that spectrum. You write in, in one of your entries in your daily reader that once the Buddha lays down the truth of suffering, he says that its cause, the second noble truth, is craving. Yeah. And then you talk about how it literally means thirst. What are some common examples of our craving and clinging that maybe somebody listening isn't quite familiar with? Yeah, there's a great example of how this works. If you decide that you're not going to be take a day and not be controlled by your craving, when you wake up in the morning, you just lie there and you go, I'm just going to lie here. I'm not going to do anything. And then after a little while, you're like, I got to go to the bathroom. So there's this discomfort. <laughs> so craving takes two forms. It's craving for pleasure, but it's also the craving to get rid of pain. So in that moment, it's a craving to get rid of this discomfort. Okay. You go to the bathroom. You're like, okay, I'm okay now. You go back to bed. I'm just going to lie here, do nothing today. Kind of getting hungry. You know, we go eat, you know. All right. Well, you know, now that I'm up, I might as well enjoy my day. And so we just start to see that just moment by moment, what do I have to do after I get up? Well, I probably have to go to work. Do I want to go to work? May, it depends on my job and my relationship to my boss and my job. You know, maybe it's pleasant. Maybe I can't wait to get to work. Maybe I want to get away from the house. You know, it, it's just this restlessness, you know, that's just sort of, it just pursues us is the t word I'm trying to think of. It's like we're being pursued all the time by some craving. And, you know, it definitely takes, I think talking about this, it can be useful, but one of the reasons why we practice meditation is to see this operating in real time rather than thinking, oh, yeah, I know what they mean, you know. But rather, we sit down and we meditate and we start to watch our mind 
And we start to see this manifestation of craving showing up in the mind. And that's where it's really driven home for us. It's one of the reasons why meditation is so important in the Buddhist tradition, because to truly get the transformative insight that the Buddha talks about, we have to see it and experience it for ourselves. I was really struck by something I read in, in the entry on the first noble truth, which was a while ago, and it stuck with me a little bit. And you use the word immaturity. (laughs) (laughs) You say, in some sense, addiction is a kind of immaturity, a childish expectation that nothing should ever go wrong, that pain and difficulties in life are a mistake. And maturity is not a word that I hear often in culture. I just really rarely hear it. You know, what does maturity mean to you and does it differ from wisdom mm-hmm. or how does it maybe connect? Yeah. Well, I have to admit that I surprised myself when I had that thought, <laughs> uh, you know, but it really rang true for me. And it partly goes back to it partly goes back to the realization that for many addicts, we start on our path of addiction as teenagers or adolescents when we aren't mature and that our addiction, you know, our constant use of some addictive substance or behavior retards our emotional growth. And so thus immaturity, you know, in that way. And that's why the description of what I'm describing as immature is very much like a teenager or an adolescent expecting to get out everything they want. And so I think it's a really good question. Maturity and wisdom, uh, what's the relationship? Well, this is actually a very traditional way of viewing wisdom as the wisdom of the elder, which is another term for maturity, you know. So when I'm talking about maturity, I'm talking about emotional growth by and large, but it also manifests as behavior, you know, as basically responsible behavior, right? And, you know, even as I say that, I think, well, that sounds kind of boring, (laughs) but you know, there's a funny, there's a funny billboard up that I've been seeing down Route 880 outside in Oakland recently. And it's very odd. It says, a nine to five job isn't corny. <laughs> and then it says something like a nine to five job is, you know, is life or it's good or what I forget. I don't even know what the tagline is. But the first line I really relate to because when I was in my addiction, that was how I thought, oh, a nine-to-five job, how corny. Like, I'm a musician, you know, I'm living a cool life. I'm, you know, and so maturity, you know, is kind of corny, you know, <laughs> in a way, <laughs> as I'm describing it. And But wisdom obviously has other components because you, one of the things that also became clear to me as I've reflected on these questions is that you can get older and you can be responsible, you know, and so-called mature without developing wisdom. And when that happens, 
you know, you can either become a wise elder or a bitter old person. And a bitter old person who is someone who doesn't develop wisdom over time. Because over time, you you either, <laughs> I'll make this statement, I don't know if it's true, but <laughs> I think you either develop wisdom or you become embittered or so wounded that, you know, you're just unhappy because life is difficult and aging is difficult and losing your friends and watching the world all of that is painful, and wisdom is the only thing that allows us to hold all of that without becoming overwhelmed and without, as I say, becoming bitter and angry or cynical and all of that. We have to be able to see, oh, this is, we have to see the bigger picture, which is, you know, something that, as you know, the wisdom traditions offer us that bigger picture of reality and of life. That is a beautiful introduction into the book, Shyla. I'm very much interested in the topic, and I think many of the listeners will be as well. We've explored quite a few different wisdom traditions here on the podcast, and many of these traditions speak of a tranquility of mind as as the goal, but seldom do you find the practical strategies that that you talk about here. So I'm excited to, to get into these five strategies that you write about. But one question before we, before we get into strategy one is you write in the book, a meditative exploration of mind depends upon clearly distinguishing between the content of your thoughts and the process of thinking. Could you say more about content and and process before we get into the strategies? Sure, because this is actually really important. And even just understanding this resolves issues with most thoughts. (laughs) There's only a few pesky ones that, um, that have to, that where we actually need the full arsenal of five strategies. Um, Many thoughts we get entangled in because we don't recognize that they're a thought. We're so enamored with the story, it's like being um, caught up in a movie or some kind of a drama, and we take it to be reality. So the first um, major, you know, step forward in this process is to be mindful of a thought as a thought. And a thought is not a static thing. It's a process a dynamic process of thinking. It's a mental activity. So instead of getting lost in the content or the story, we now become mindful of the activity that is occurring. Thinking is happening. And this changes the entire framework of how we work with the mind. If we're looking at the story, there's there's much that we can learn and grow from uh, by unpacking some of the assumptions and the uh, biases around the content, clarifying some things that are maybe memories that may or may not be accurate, because, you know, they're always changing over time. Each time we think something, it's a whole new event, and it's never exactly the same as the previous time we thought it. 
So you can imagine having a, a, a thought or a memory arise, you know, a hundred times is the last time you thought it exactly the same as the first time. No, usually not. Uh, it's a dynamic process. So we first need to really recognize the distinction between the content of the thoughts and the process. And though there can be some insight into, you know, basically why we react that way or what actually happened or who actually said what and what was going on, there can be some understanding that's important around the content. So we don't need to entirely ignore the content. But the main orientation of meditative investigation is to look at our relationship to thinking and what are the underlying forces that keep fueling that thought. So it's not about this particular memory or this particular plan or this particular fantasy. That, in that sense, the content doesn't so much matter. We're looking much more at what is the activity of remembering, of planning, and of ruminating, and of worrying, and of, of judging. What is that action? How is that functioning? How is it being fed and fueled and continued in our lives? And what would be an intervention that would uh, allow that, that harmful pattern? That's so helpful. Um, I'm excited to get into to these five strategies here, uh, and I've I've got a few maybe what if questions on on applying these as we go through. But uh, let's start with a strategy one. You you write it's replace unwholesome thoughts with wholesome thoughts. Well, first one has to be able to discern the difference between a wholesome and an unwholesome. So what we've talked about previously. All must apply. Somebody first needs to be able to distinguish a thought different than like what is mental from what is physical. So that we're not orienting to what if, if there's blame in the mind, we're not orienting to what somebody said to us last week and got us angry. We're experiencing the thought arising in the present moment as a mental activity and recognizing that it is rooted in anger as an example. So then when we're angry and we keep thinking about that person, they said this, I'm going to say that. If they say this, if I see them again, I'm going to react this way. We can feel that we're, we're getting kind of hot and bothered about this. And we, there's a lot of clues to tell us there is anger present. So do we want to work with mindfulness of anger? We can. Do we want to work with mindfulness of the thought? We can. Of thinking? We can. But actually what's happening is both of them are feeding each other. So for the, for the pattern of, uh, for the first strategy of replacing, we can recognize, you know, this is unwholesome. I could keep thinking about this for the next day, for the next week, for the next year. And, you know, it's not very helpful. So is there an alternative? And Anything that's occurring within our own minds, I guarantee you there is an alternative. Because it's occurring within our own minds. <laughs> we can think of something else. We always have an alternative. We are never stuck. We never have only one option. 
And so no matter how strong the habit is or what nasty thing the other person said, or even if we are sure that anyone would be suffering the same way we are if they experienced it, nevertheless, we are not stuck. So this first step of being able to replace one thought with another, it develops the flexibility and it reminds us it's just a thought that's arising in the present moment and it also can change. It does change. It's definitely not fixed. So it's really important to be able to recognize that these thoughts are discrete mental events and we can change from one to the other. So it's not about now being attached to a positive thought. It's about realizing we are not stuck in the negative thoughts. And we don't have to be caught by that that pattern of thinking. So I wouldn't suggest choosing a second negative thought. That would just be foolish. Some people have done that. I've known some people who have, oh, for example, been very angry. Oh, no, sorry, been very sleepy. And to overcome the sleep, they stimulate angry thoughts because it brings up energy. And now they have two hindrances. They have the dullness of mind from the sleep and the anger. So it's not a good idea. The Buddha only suggested replacing with something wholesome. So if somebody said something to us that was really nasty, we could have a more compassionate thought, for example. Like, you know, maybe they were um, something difficult happened for them. Maybe they were grieving, maybe they had a loss, maybe they uh, were, were, were in pain. Often when people get er- angry, it's because they're actually in physical pain or hungry. <laughs> you know, there's lots of reasons that, that somebody, has a, somebody says something that they later regret. So, uh, you know, sometimes it's not always intentional. So we, but we can think, uh, uh, we can have a thought that's compassionate. We could have a thought that just tries to focus maybe on a quality that we appreciate them so that every time we see them, we don't always get triggered by the nasty thing they said. We can also get triggered by some kind action or some nice thing that we've seen or know about them at some point because people are complicated. But we do tend to, as human beings, focus on the negative. One little thing and we'll forget 50 good things. So we train ourselves, and this this is just a very simple act of just realizing uh, we don't have to get caught in it, and we develop the flexibility to shift to some other thought. I find this particular strategy just inspiring, the agency and and freedom that we we have here. And I made a note, and I want to ask, and you kind of touched on it a bit there, of... I think of in this strategy, I think of something that Mon- the philosopher Montaigne supposedly said to himself all the time is like, what do I know? And you kind of alluded to it there. Of, and I think of that as maybe a neutral. If we're feeling a certain way and getting these thoughts over something that maybe someone else has done or or judgments, maybe the, the wholesome compassion replacement could be a bit of a leap for for some of us, but maybe a, a neutral of I, I don't know how their day has been. I don't know what you know. I, I don't know what's going on. Some sort of neutral is you know. Could that be replacing it with a wholesome? Some sort of um, you know. I'm I'm not. I don't know the whole story. I think that's a very wholesome thought because it's a wise yeah. thought. 
And wisdom is extremely wholesome. You know, really, what do mm. we know? What do we know? Yeah. It's, an especially, it's one that I would use especially if I found that the mind was reinforcing kind of a, 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 an attachment to a view or an opinion. And I keep going mm. over in my mind as to why I'm right. I don't know if that happens to anybody else, but sometimes <laughs> we have an opinion and the person didn't, you know, didn't agree with us immediately and we keep going over and over. But you know, maybe there's something we're not seeing. But what do we mm. know? It's, it's just an opinion from this perspective. So I think that's related to this, this idea. And I think a neutral, a neutral thought is a, is a very wholesome thought. Another thought is to just orient ourselves more to mindfulness. So instead of getting caught in the story, we might ask a question, can I be present with this? You know, can I just meet this with calmness? Can I consider this? So instead of moving into the reaction, we're inviting a, a question or a thought that brings us into a an observing, a, a mindful, a contemplative, a, a reflective mode that actually can help us meet the situation. And that also gets us out of the habitual pattern. Let me ask a question around, it seems like strategy one, and I, I've been playing with these strategies over the last month or so since I picked up your book, it seems like strategy one can be very effective, probably for, for most of us right there. But then that particular unwholesome thought, maybe one or two days later, could come up again and you apply strategy one and it's, it's effective and you move on. And, and maybe there's this pattern of, of similar unwholesome thoughts. Do you move on to to strategy two at some point to which is examine the dangers of distracted thoughts i think you're quite correct that I, I most thoughts will be addressed first of all just by recognizing that it's a thought and then the second most thoughts will probably be directed by just replacing it and just when you replace it you've taken a lot of the um the energy out, and now you're occupied by something else. And you do that several times, and you kind of move on in life <laughs> for <laughs> most thoughts. So I kind of see it like a, a pyramid where, the, the, in terms of how many thoughts, they, you, each strategy, if you go through the cycle, the system, it, you, go, you need to go through the strategies with less and less thoughts. It's like filtering just those few that are either deeply conditioned or particularly strong and toxic. Uh, there's just a few that really need to go all the way through the five strategies. Most will be dealt with with the first. This, uh, another layer will be developed with the first and the second, then the first, second, and third, like that. But there mm -hmm. does come a time when after you've replaced the same thought a whole bunch of times, and it starts to feel like a uh, just an exercise, you know, replacing it. You realize there's something more that's going on there that needs to be seen, that this exercise isn't actually enough for this particular pattern. And, and, some, and there can be a, an advantage, a benefit 
to contemplating the danger in those thoughts. And this isn't to scare us. <laughs> and it isn't to judge us. Oh, look what a stupid thing you're doing. Um, it, it's to orient our attention to recognize, hold it. We're doing something that is actively taking, taking us in a direction we do not want to go. How about uh, Buddha nature that you write about in one of the chapters? How do you describe that? Oh, Buddha nature. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Buddha nature is part of what's thorny about that is different. Buddhists will talk about it in pretty different ways. A, A pretty good starting point is this idea that all sentient beings have, uh, and some kind of, innate uh solution to the problem in them sometimes this is described as a capacity that is like there's a capacity sometimes it's described in a stronger way of like uh you know and something more actual um but in the capacity they'll they'll say things like um there's this seed stone example like um uh you can get if you if you process it in the right way, you can get oil from a seed, but there's like no processing you can do to get oil from a stone. It just doesn't have. So you kind of be like, well, the seed has oil in it in a certain way. It has a kind of potential. And we're supposed to have that for solving the problem for like understanding how the world is. Um, uh, So that's, that's a kind of fairly straightforward way um, to talk about it. I link it with this idea of like the the problem the problem that I set up the book with some later Buddhists will say like it's only an apparent problem like there never was a problem the problem was there was never a problem with how the world is exactly there was a problem with my mistaken relation to it so the world was always fine and I was kind of always fine I just had to clear up this mistake that's a kind of different way of seeing it. And in fact, certain, certain um, Buddhist sects, when they talk about the life of the Buddha will go this route where they say, in fact, the Buddha was always enlightened and he only just pretended to do this life story as a, as a kind of favor to us to teach us what to do. Uh, but he did it. So it was all kind of an act or whatever. Um, and, and I think part of what motivates that is like this, this Buddha nature stuff. How important is that that realization that it's within us to to transcend that? Do you see that as a a critical point? Well, here's how I feel today. (laughs) (laughs) I I think that uh, there's a psychological tendency to think about the object of our perceptions or our emotions. And part of what Buddhism tries to do is to get you to think about not the object, but like the source. So... Here's an example. Someone makes me angry. And one thing is like, I can focus on that person and what they did. And like, you know, the object of my anger. Uh, But a lot of Buddhist advice is like, well, hang on. Think about what's causing the anger. What is the anger really? Why are you really angry about this? What presuppositions does the anger involve? Like, that's a that's a shift in how you're relating to to that. Uh, And I think Buddhists are are pushing 
that way. So in the sense, here's an example I used. Like, um, if you, sometimes when you stick a, you can stick a pencil in a glass of water and it looks bent. And you might think, oh, the pencil's bent. And then you might examine more closely and like, and be like, oh, I see. It's just this thing that happens in the water with light and blah, blah, blah. Maybe you learn it in a sciencey way. Maybe you learn it in a non-sciencey way by just playing with pencils and water. But certain ways of describing uh, spiritual advancement, if you want to call it that, make it like, oh, I see. I fixed the pencil. Like it's about the kind of object, right? <laughs> and that's, you know, one way to think about it in Buddha nature is like the pencil was never broken. When you realized that it was a mistake, the pencil was the same as it always had been. Like nothing got fixed because nothing was really ever broken. You just realized this mistake that led you to misperceive what was going on and you corrected the mistake. But that's all that happened. So I one way to understand Buddha nature is like, that's what's going on. That's very helpful. I, I appreciate you elaborating on that. To transition into part two of the book around practice, you write about variety of, of Buddhist practice, and it's obviously a a a big pond, many different uh, you know variations. Could you touch briefly a bit on the variation there? Yeah. So one of the th- things I wanted to like push back against is there's a kind of common view, especially in like North America, Europe, is that. Buddhist practice means meditation. That's like what Buddhist practice is, is meditation. And uh, there's various um, criticisms of this. Um, One is that the idea that all Buddhists should meditate is a fairly modern one. And it sort of emerges only in the modern period and is kind of projected back. Um, But even now, if you go to places in Asia with a lot of Buddhists... People are doing a lot of different things. So I wanted to include things like venerating relics, pilgrimage. Um, there's a, a, a Tibetan Buddhist practice called uh, prostration. That's like you just sort of bow down before a kind of image or a, a text or something or a teacher. Uh, there's another one called circumambulation where it's like you walk clockwise around an important object. Um so I try to talk about those in a way that makes them understand like what they're supposed to do. At, because I think it's tempting to think about those things as, you know, quote unquote, ritual. Uh, and when people talk about ritual, often what they mean is like something that other people do that they don't understand why they do it. And so then they call it a ritual. But then like once they understand the meaning... It doesn't feel, they don't want to apply that label anymore. So I kind of wanted to describe practices outside of meditation like that in a way that would lead the reader to not want to describe them as ritual because they (laughs) understand why you would do it. How about some of the different sects within, in Buddhism, the, you know, Zen Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, and, 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 and many more is, do you, in your opinion, are there quite a bit of similarity between these different... I mean, how would you describe them? They're in some ways similar, in some ways different, is the boring answer. But I think part of it is like, I mean, we call them all Buddhists, and it's not just because they appeal to the authority of the Buddhists. Um, and, and this hasn't been the case all the time. So in the 
you know, early days of Western scholarship on Buddhism, um, the, the sort of Western scholars had this idea of like, older is better, older is more true, newer things are corruptions, so much so that they didn't like to describe Tibetan Buddhism as Buddhism. They would, they would call it Lamaism. You know, they thought oh, it was wow. such a corruption that they didn't even want to call it Buddhism. Um, and, and, you know, that's like, there's a bunch of presuppositions there. And it's like, you could easily say like, well, you know, older is older, but like newer things are developments and they're kind of refinements. Like there's, there's actually positive ways you could describe that depending on, you know, what you like or what you don't like. Um, but I think that, the, you know, there's things, broad things that, that Buddhist sects uh, agree upon that is like our common sense way of relating to the world is, has problems and those problems need to be rooted out. Um, and that the Buddha and the tradition surrounding him is, is like a source of answers or a source of Buddhists will say refuge, you know? Um, and I guess the, the other thing that I was kind of surprised going into it, like w when I first started, I think this is also, I was kind of importing from Christianity is different Christian sects. You know, if you want to say like, oh, this person's Presbyterian and this person's Calvinist. And you say, well, what are the points of doctrine on which they differ? What is, <laughs> what is the, uh, you know, what is the sentence that one of them would shake their head yes to, and the other one would shake their head no to. And sometimes differences between buddhist sects work that way but sometimes it doesn't sometimes it's like what texts you emphasize what practices you think are more important and there it's much less like a doctrinal thing and much more like well these are the texts that we like and we like this guy <laughs> and yeah. so this is what we do and you know you can do that that's what makes you you but like what makes us us is we do that and we venerate the lotus sutra and we whatever so I think there's also like, I guess, different differences than <laughs> you might find in, in thinking about it just purely doctrinally. Around getting ready is a is another chapter, and as I said earlier, you really kind of hold lightly any particular paths or practices, and and really suggest individual reflection to determine the the practice for you. Could you elaborate on on getting started? Partly, I, I try to, rather than simply say, like, hey, it depends, you're an individual, you got to figure out, I try to give the kind of advice that's like, here's what I think you ought to reflect on <laughs> to figure out the answer <laughs> to these questions. Um, so, the the things I, I think of are like, are you the sort of person that requires a lot of structure, or does a, the structure feel oppressive to you? Um do you need social support? Are you the kind of person who needs a gym buddy or are you kind of person who a gym buddy is like totally unnecessary? Like, so if, I mean, if you're talking about like, Hey, I want to start exercising, what should I do? And it's like, some people say, Oh, you got to get a gym buddy. And some people are like, Oh, you got to make a schedule. Right. And it's like, depends. Like, are you a schedule person? Are you, are you socially motivated? Like what's, what's going to happen there? So I think part of it is figuring out, um, what energizes you and what keeps you going past the kind of initial excitement of doing something new. Um, and then trying to take that into account when you're deciding whether you, for example, need a teacher or want to join a class or want to read something on your own or what, I mean, it's like, it's, it's going to depend on, and I think part of what it depends on is like being honest about your own tendencies and where you're at. 
there's a, a few practices that you'd list that I was hoping we could touch on that are maybe not as as common. Um, the first, mindfulness of, of death. Uh, reading this, I thought of the stoic kind of memento mori. How would you say in this context, like how does this practice help us to see see clearly? There's a bunch of stuff that it's doing. So some of the stuff is it's motivating. So there's this idea of like, um, you can kind of feel like, well, yeah, yeah, I'll do it later. Like I had this a lot, like pre-pandemic, there was all this stuff that I thought I would do eventually when I had time. Uh, And then especially early in the pandemic, I had a lot of time where I had to stay at home. And some of them I did and some of them I didn't. And the ones I didn't, I had to like, really be like, am I ever going to do this? If I'm not doing it now, what's so part of it is like, you can kind of think like, yeah, I want to reflect on these, uh, you know, spiritual, broad, deeper aspects of life. But, you know, I'm a busy person and like I have a job and kids and whatever. And like, I'll do it later. Right. And so part of it is like, like always happens later becomes later becomes later becomes never. Right. So part of it is like, if you're thinking about death, you're like, and, and one thing that Buddhists are often highlighting is that the time of death is uncertain. You can't be sure that death, I mean, death isn't something that just happens to old people. It happens to all people. So you have to be like, well, I better do it now. Right. So part of it has this motivating thing. And part of it has, um, this aspect of like, when you're thinking about death, you're thinking about the self, what you are, what does death mean? What is it? What is ending when it's ending? What is, you know, or like, you know, when I, when you reflect on the fact that you and everyone you know are going to die, then one of the things that you notice is like, I only have a limited time with these people. And so, uh, you know, at least I guess I speaking from my own experience, when I reflect on that, I'm like, I only have a limited amount of time that I don't even know how much time it is. Is this really how I want to spend it? Like being mad at them for some not emptying the dishwasher or like being late to a meeting or whatever. Like you're kind of like, I think in a sense it, you know, turns the volume down on certain things and turns the volume up on other things. And I think that's part of what's going, that's part of what's going on. I think. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. 